These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Greetings. Good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to the Coffee with Jeff podcast, the podcast in which I find a subject I would like to know more about and force that knowledge onto you, the podcast subscriber. This is episode 228. Once there was a man who was stranded on a deserted island for a long, long time. Every day his beard grew longer and his clothes deteriorated. His only friends were the goats and cats that shared the island. With them he sang and danced. He lived alone with his thoughts for four and a half years, every day watching the seas, hoping for rescue. The man was left on a deserted island in 1704 by a privateering ship, and for the next four years, he would learn to be a better person. Today, I have the story of castaway Alexander Salkirk. In April of 1719, the novel Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe was published. It is the story of a man who was stranded on a remote tropical deserted island near the coast of Venezuela and Trinidad for 28 years. When the book was published, it was credited to the work's protagonist, Robinson Crusoe, and because of this, many who first read the book believed it was based on a true story. It wasn't. But there was a man who suffered a similar fate although his time on a deserted island was a lot less. And he had no companion named Friday. In fact, he had no companion at all except goats and cats. He was a Scottish sailor named Alexander Salkirk. He was actually born Alexander Saul Craig in 1676 to the son of a wealthy shoemaker and tanner in Lower Largo, Fife, Scotland. He was the seventh son, and because of this, his mother always considered him to be a lucky lad and hoped one day he would obtain good fortune. From an early age, he had it in his mind to go to sea, so in school he studied navigation. He was a very smart but spoiled child who was always getting into trouble for one thing or another due to his constant mischief. His unruliness was encouraged by his mother by hiding his behavior from his strict father. This often caused much bickering between the two. The problem between Alexander and his father got so bad, especially when Alexander said he wasn't planning to take the career path his father wished, that his dad often threatened to cut off his inheritance. Now Largo was a very religious community, and Alexander's temper and behavior was often getting him into trouble with the church authorities. So when he turned 18, he left home to go to sea and was gone for six years. No one really knows what he was doing during this time. He may have been working as a buccaneer in the South Seas, but no one's really sure. We do know that at this time he began calling himself Saul Kirk rather than Saul Craig. Apparently this was due to his name being written down in error on a logbook and Alexander deciding he liked the new name better. By 1701, he was back home in Largo, and he was worse than ever, often arguing and fighting with his brothers. Like always, he was given a citation from the church for his unruly behavior. 
One particular fight with two of his brothers came when they pulled a practical joke on him that made him upset. He was forced to publicly apologize and soon after was off again. Charles II of Spain died on November 1, 1700. Charles had no children and was the last of the Spanish Habsburgs. This began a 13-year war to determine whether the vast possessions of the Spanish Empire should pass to the House of Bourbon or to the House of Helsburg in what is known as War of the Spanish Succession. England was now at war with Spain and France. Queen Anne of England offered Seamond a letter of mark. This gave private ships the right to raid enemy ships and keep four-fifths of the spoils of war for themselves. These men were known as privateers. It was basically legalized piracy. It was a dangerous occupation, but the wealth it could bring attracted many men, including William Dampier, an English privateer and explorer. In his lifetime, Dampier became the first Englishman to explore parts of what today is Australia and was the first person to circumnavigate the world three times. He was also an excellent writer who wrote books on his travels that were highly sought out. Dampier had two ships ready to go to the Spanish-controlled South Pacific, the 26-gun St. George with a crew of 120 men and the 16-gun Sink Ports with 63 men. Alexander Salkirk signed on, expecting to come back with riches. He was made sailing master of the Sink Ports. On April 30, 1703, the two ships pulled away. Salkirk quickly became a great seaman, the type that could smell a storm brewing, could predict the change of wind from the slightest slackness of the sail, and also developed a great sense of foreboding. He could sense when danger was on the horizon. Just a couple of months into the voyage, Alexander learned the terrible truth about Captain Dampier. He was a horrible leader. When he marooned one of his men for insubordination on a Portuguese penal colony, morale on both ships began to sink. And as time went on, more sailors were marooned, some at their own request. Many of the crew thought Dampier wasn't ruthless enough to take opportunities to plunder passing ships, and as a consequence, large amounts of booty were being lost. Things were made worse when the captain of the sink ports, Charles Pickering, suddenly passed away from fever and was replaced by the disagreeable 21-year-old lieutenant Thomas Stradling. Stradling and Salkirk got into frequent arguments about how to run a ship, especially with navigation, something Salkirk had become an expert at. And to top it off, the sink ports was in terrible condition. Worms were eating away the wooden planks and leaks became a problem, and they were getting worse all the time. The ship was even in worse shape when both ships took on Cape Horn. Cape Horn is at the bottom of South America, and passing through Cape Horn is necessary if one wants to travel from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic. Well, this was true before the Panama Canal anyway. The problem is it's one of the most hazardous shipping routes in the world. Huge winds, waves, and storms have taken many riches, ships, and lives to the bottom. It took four days and some of the worst weather imaginable to make it around. During the voyage, both ships were separated, and the men of the St. George assumed sink ports had been lost at sea. 
Once on the other side, ten days later, however, both ships were reunited. They landed on the remote, uninhabited island of Juan Fernandez off the coast of Chile. Juan Fernandez was a great place to get fresh water, replenish supplies, and make repairs. The island was a paradise to the men, never too hot or too cold, with plenty of goats and fish to eat. Salkirk and 40 men, who were just sick and tired of Stradling's poor leadership, decided they would rather stay on the island than get back aboard the sink ports. Stradling was so focused on the money that he refused to listen to Salkirk when he tried to explain the quickly deteriorating, dangerous condition of the ship. It was only through Captain Dampier that the men agreed to return and to continue their search for French and Spanish ships to plunder. But those plans didn't go very well. After a couple unsuccessful attacks, they were forced to retreat, taking on heavy damage. By then, both ships were at odds with each other, and they decided to split up the riches and go their separate ways. Stradling decided to go back to the uninhabited island of Juan Fernandez to replenish their dwindling supplies. Once there, Alexander Salkirk and a group of men begged Captain Stradling to take a few days to repair the ship, fearing the ship was no longer seaworthy. Stradling thought Salkirk was being way too cautious. It could take days or even weeks to fix all the ship's problems. Who knows how many Spanish or French ships they would miss and all the riches that come with it. His order stood. The ship would leave as soon as possible. Salkirk's famous temper began to erupt. He said he would rather take his chance on the island rather than this leaky vessel. He turned to the crew and asked, Who will join me? No one agreed. He said he would go it alone. He began to wonder if Stradling would have him put in restraints, locked up until the ship was back out on the ocean. But instead, to his surprise, Stradling quickly agreed. I found him just as glad to be rid of me as I was of him, Salkirk later said. The one thing we had in common was our mutual dislike. A longboat paddled by two men brought him to a shore with his few possessions, a small sea chest of supplies, a musket, and a Bible. Once the boat dropped him off on the island and started to paddle away, Salkirk suddenly changed his mind. He panicked and began running towards the ship, going into the water up to his knees, yelling that he wanted to get back aboard. But Stradling was having none of it. He was all too happy to have Salkirk out of his life. He stood and watched the ship slowly disappear into the distance and realized that he was now all alone. He listened to the waves hitting the rocks around him, felt the offshore breeze, and watched the sun slowly set. He was alone, just him and his thoughts. For days he sat and stared out to sea, not even taking time to eat, hoping the ship would return. It never did. Hunger finally got the best of him, and he began to feed on seals and shellfish that he could find on the shore. He hated the food and missed salt and bread. The first thing he needed to do was find a place to live, and there was a cave in the rocks on the shore that he used as his home. He would walk up and down the beach, hoping, probably praying, for a ship to rescue him. And as the days went on, he suffered a terrible depression. He often thought of suicide. One night he was in his cave with a fire to keep warm when he began to hear a violent wailing noise outside. There was something on the beach that sounded as if it was calling out in anger. 
Whatever it was, it wasn't human. Sweat began to pour down his face. He sat up, rigid with terror. Were these monsters on the beach? Demons, maybe? He dug out his musket and waited. No sleep was gotten that night. In the morning, he slowly ventured out. He saw what had been making that horrible noise. Hundreds of migrating sea lions now filled the beach. His main source of food was now cut off, and this forced Alexander to head into the island's interior. This might have been the best thing to happen to him. He found that deep in the woods, there were tall trees that produced a sweet fruit, and others that had small black plums. There were also goats. Goats provided meat for eating and skins for bedding and clothing, and as time went on, his clothes began to deteriorate. To catch a goat, he learned how to chase them down. The skins that he was able to cure was just what he needed as winter began to approach. They kept him warm. His previous experience with this kind of thing, when he worked for his father's tannery, came in handy. What he didn't have was experience building a shelter, and with the cold coming, he would have to do something. He had an axe, but no saw or hammer. He used pimento branches that he tied together with bits of reed and thread pulled from his woolen socks to build a hut. He lined the walls with goatskins. He used the few nails he had from his chest to build a bed. He also constructed a smaller hut to be used as a kitchen and smokehouse. He began to experiment with cooking, learning how to make the food taste good without salt. All this also took his mind off loneliness and gave him a reason to live. Living in the deep interior island also had another big advantage. His biggest fear was the Spanish. If they arrived on the island to replenish supplies and discovered him, he would most likely be killed or worse, taken as a slave. And he would rather die than be a slave to the Spanish. Deep in the woods kept him hidden from visitors. A daily routine developed that began with the reading of the Bible. He kept strict records of the day to make sure he knew it was Sunday, the Sabbath. After reading the Bible, he climbed to the top of the highest hill to look for passing ships, and at night he would light signal fires. He was actually able to make fire by the old method of rubbing two sticks together. One issue he had was rats. At night when he was sleeping, the rats would often nibble on his toes or eat his clothes. But luckily for Alexander, there were also feral cats that ran wild on the island. It took some time to catch them, but when he did, he was able to train them. Not only did the cats keep the rats away, but they also became Alexander's friends, providing company. They bred so fast that often he was covered with them when he slept. He also worried about the cats a bit. He thought that upon his death, with no one there to bury his body the cats might feast on his remains. He had one very serious accident, one that almost killed him. He was chasing down a goat when the goat suddenly stopped. As he lunged towards it, he found that the goat had stopped because he was on the edge of a cliff that was hidden by some shrubs. Both Alexander and the goat fell from a great height. He only survived the great fall because he landed onto the goat, which softened the impact. He was severely hurt and barely survived. He lay on his back for the rest of the day and into the night. It wasn't until sometime the next day that he found the energy to crawl back to his home and lay on his goatskin bed. For the next couple of days, he was in extreme pain 
and without anybody to get him food or water, he was forced to painfully do these things for himself. It took ten full days before he was well enough to get back on his feet. As time went on, Alexander Salkirk began to find contentment in peace. I was a better Christian while in solitude, he said, than I ever was before, or, I'm afraid, ever was again. And once reconciled to my disengagement from the world, my being under constant cheerful skies, became as joyful as it had in months before been irksome. He began to train young goats and cats, and later claimed that he taught them to dance. They were his only friends. He said that he never danced with a lighter heart or greater spirit anywhere to the best music than he did to the sounds of his own voice with his dumb companions. And he must have looked quite a sight, all dressed in goatskins with long grain hair and beard. When his shoes were beyond usefulness, he didn't care. His feet were so callous that he didn't need them anymore. And the food he ate began to get better all the time. He ate meats, fruits, and vegetables, and spent his time learning how to prepare the food in different delicious ways. He found he no longer missed salt. He took delight in everything around him. Now and again he would carve his name and the day he was stranded onto the trees, and sometimes the length of time he was there, figuring some day, when he was gone, dead or rescued, some future inhabitants would know Alexander Salkirk had been there. And then, after three years, two ships appeared in the bay. He ran down to greet them, but soon discovered that they were Spanish. The Spaniards saw him, so he ran. They followed, shooting bullets in his direction. But all those years of chasing down goats had made him a very good runner, and he was able to get ahead of them and climb a tree. He watched from up above as a couple of Spaniards took time to urinate on the very tree he was hiding in. He looked down, fearing to make any sound. The Spaniards soon noticed a goat and left to kill it. They never came back to look for Salkirk, and soon they were gone. He kept up his daily vigil of lighting signal fires and watching for ships. Day after day he looked and, for a while, never expected to see anything. It was on February 2nd, 1709, almost four and a half years since he left, that he saw something. And by this point he really didn't care who they were. Amazingly, the crafts were the privateering ships, the Duke and the Duchess, from Bristol, England. The Duke's captain and leader of the expedition was Woods Rogers, an experienced seaman. The pair of ships have just gone through the violent winds of Cape Horn and were knocked off course, ending up in the below-zero temperatures of the Antarctic Peninsula. By the time they were back on course, they were low on supplies, including fruit, causing many of the men to suffer from scurvy. They headed to the island of Juan Fernandez to gather supplies. Salkirk spotted the ships in the distance and for a moment didn't believe what he was seeing. Was it for real? He had been fooled before. The ships got closer as the day went on, and Salkirk began to gather firewood to let them know he was there, just in case they weren't planning on visiting the island and were just passing by. He never took his eyes off the ships, and once night fell, he lit the signal fires. He kept them burning all night, never sleeping until the sun rose in the morning. Early that day, he killed a couple of goats and prepared meals for his visitors. 
As the ships approached the island, they saw the signal fires Salkirk had lit and were concerned that the island that they knew to be uninhabited might be occupied by an enemy. They thought they might have to fight for supplies, things like drinking water that they needed. A boat was sent to the island with eight armed men. Salkirk saw the men coming and ran down to meet them. He carried a stick with a piece of linen as a flag and waved it as he ran in excitement. The men in the boat called out, asking for a good place to land. Salkirk pointed out a good spot and quickly beat them there and waited. He greeted each one as they got off the boat, but the men were too stunned to reciprocate. One can only imagine what they thought. A wild man dressed in goatskins, including a goatskin cap he wore on his head, a beard down past his waist, and who had trouble speaking in complete sentences. It must have been quite a sight. Rogers would refer to Salkirk as the governor of Juan Fernandez and say that he spoke in halves with want of practice. Now, in a strange coincidence, the ship, the Duke, was piloted by William Dampier, the man who had hired him all those years ago for the Sink Ports. Because of Dampier's presence, Salkirk first refused to board the ship until he was convinced that Dampier was not the captain. He would rather remain on the island than serve under Dampier once again. But once aboard, he began to tell the tale to all the men. Dampier, of course, recognized Salkirk and told Captain Rogers of his amazing skill as a sailor. Captain Rogers made Salkirk the Duke's second mate. The ship stayed for 11 days on the island, and the men were amazed by Salkirk's strength and ability. They watched as he ran down goats, killed them, and returned with the goats on his back. On February 12, 1709, Alexander Salkirk said goodbye to the island that had been his home for four and a half years. For the next two years, he returned to privateering with a vengeance. They battled many small ships for loot and raided the town of Guayaquil in Ecuador. While there, he was taking jewelry off about a dozen pretty well-dressed women. The ladies were so charmed by Salkirk and his men that they offered to feed them and brought them good liquor. Before they returned to port, they captured a prized Spanish galleon, making all the men rich. They arrived at an English port on October 1st, 1711. He was now rich and a celebrity, all the things he dreamed about when he was a young boy. It was one year, eight months, and three days since he left on the sink ports when he arrived back in London, and he found that the world had changed much since he left. As a celebrity, he was often demanded at coffee houses, and the papers did stories about him. He was constantly invited to some of the wealthiest homes to tell his tale. Everybody, it seemed, wanted to hear the tale of his time on a deserted island. The whole experience made him very uncomfortable. He began to miss the tranquility of his island life. He would say, I am now worth 800 pounds, but shall never be so happy as when I was not worth a farling. He began to revert back into the person he was before he left, becoming angry and drinking a lot. After he got into trouble for fighting, he decided to travel back home to Largo. He arrived at his childhood home to find nobody there. Realizing it was Sunday, he went to church where Mass was happening. He stood in the back, dressed in elegant clothes. One by one, the partitioners turned to look at him, not recognizing the strange man. And a stranger was something rarely seen at the church. 
His mother and father, who had long thought he was probably dead, turned to look as well. Finally, his mother, after staring for a while, finally recognized who he was, and without regards to the service that was happening, ran to him with joyful tears streaming down her face. The family, mother, father, and brothers, were overjoyed to have him back. And to his mother, the seventh son had achieved what she had always hoped. The 45-year-old man tried to settle back into life at Largo, but he never felt truly comfortable. He began to miss his life on the island. It got to the point where his family would rarely see him, as the first thing in the morning he would wander off to meditate by himself and not return until the evening. At one point, he met Sophie Bruce, a young dairymaid who was also a recluse, and the two of them ran off together. But finally, he had enough and joined the Royal Navy. He served as master's mate aboard the HMS Weymouth in an anti-piracy patrol off the west coast of Africa. On December 13, 1921, Alexander Salkirk died from yellow fever aboard the ship and was buried at sea. Salkirk was 45 years old. A little bit before I go, Alexander Salkirk was right about the sink ports. The English ship sank not much after straddling left Salkirk on Juan Fernandez. There were only a couple of survivors, including straddling, who was captured by the Spanish. Now, if you look for more information about Alexander Salkirk, You'll constantly find articles, books, and videos that refer to him as the real Robinson Crusoe. But was he? First of all, the fictional Crusoe was stranded for 28 years. But I have to be honest, I've never read Daniel Defoe's book. But there's an article on the National Geographic website called Debunking the Myth of the Real Robinson Crusoe. The basic premise is that Crusoe was based on a lot of buccaneer survival stories. Salkirk is definitely not accepted as a major source or even one of the top five, says Paula Backschneider, an English professor at Auburn University and author of Daniel Defoe, His Life. Robinson Crusoe is a long book, and it's incorrect in a dozen ways to give Salkirk as a major source, she said. So to all of you who call him the real Robinson Crusoe, ha, ha, ha. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. I thank you all for listening. And if you want to help me out with the money it takes to produce this show, I've got a Patreon page and you can donate there. There's a link to it on my website, Coffee with Jeff. And if you could leave a review or tell your friends about it, that would be great. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter, and my name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you can join. I encourage you to provide me with story ideas for the podcast. And links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'll have a link to that on the Coffee with Jeff website as well. I want to thank my wife of 37 years for being my wife of 37 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. 
Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. That warms my little heart. Take care, remain healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks with something, well, gosh darn terrific. Thank you.